You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. What does it mean to put our hope in a God we can't see? What does it mean to walk the walk of faith? This is our sermon series, Water and Blood, Finding Rest in Jesus, Our High Priest. Good morning, children of the Most High God. (laughs) Good morning. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Hebrews 6, 4 through 20. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because, to their own harm, they are crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed, and at the end will be burned. Even though we are speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case, we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end, so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself." I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that Jesus is able to save us completely. We who come to you through him by faith, because Jesus has died on the cross for our sins and 
He sits at your right hand exalted and because he prays for us as our great high priest. So Father, we pray this morning that we would in fact claim the victory that we have in Jesus as we hear this warning not to fall away. But we pray that the warning not to fall away would swallow up the hope that we have in Christ. But instead, we pray that you would use the warning as a means by which to cause us to persevere. Because Jesus is the anchor of our souls. And Father, we pray for your people. Open up their hearts to receive the Word of God, to hear the Word of God, to listen to the Word of God preached. And give me the grace to preach it to them with clarity and the power of the Spirit. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 20 is the hardest text in the entire letter. The author's basic point is, do not forsake Christ, because those who forsake Christ forfeit salvation in Him and will suffer God's wrath at the end of the age when Jesus returns. This message is a matter of spiritual life and death. And it's a message that's relevant for us today at Midtown. There are people who once professed faith in Christ from our church who have abandoned their faith in Jesus. I do not mean they've simply left Midtown to join another church. But I mean, they have walked away from Jesus. They've renounced their faith in Christ. And they no longer follow Him. Perhaps there are some of us here this morning who contemplate forsaking Christ and letting go of our confession of faith in Him to pursue the temporary and fading simple, sinful pleasures of this world. When the author of Hebrews tells us this morning not to do that. He tells us not to renounce our faith in Jesus. Because if we walk away from Christ, we suffer the real threat of God's wrath. I'm going to linger here for a moment by way of introduction to set the context for the passage. The warning in Hebrews 6 has one purpose, one. The author is threatening believers with the real threat of the wrath of God in the age to come. If we walk away from Christ, and he's giving us this warning so that we will continue to hold on to our confession of faith in Jesus and persevere until the end, because Jesus died 
for our sins. There's no other hope. Now to clarify, on the one hand, it is true that Christians will struggle with our faith. We will have spiritual lapses into sin. We will become disobedient or rebellious in certain areas of our lives. And then once confronted by the Word of God and the people of God, and once convicted by the Spirit of God, we will repent. And we will continue to follow Jesus faithfully again. But brothers and sisters, Christians who repent after patterns of disobedience are not the group the author in Hebrews is talking about. The author of Hebrews is talking about those who profess their faith in Christ. They give the impression that they are believers, but at some point in their lives, they walk away. They become an apostate, which is a term that refers to those who profess faith in Jesus for a period of time. They play church for a little while. They do the Christian thing for a season. And then they reach a point where they let go of Jesus and they walk away from Him, rejecting their faith alone in Christ alone. And they never return to Him again. We'll see in a moment, the author says, apostates neither will repent when they walk away, nor are they able to repent because they crucified Christ again. They trample under their feet the blood of the Son of God. They agree with the crucifiers and say there's no salvation in Him by how they live their lives. But here's the good news. You want some good news? Here's the good news. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God for us who genuinely believe. And he has entered the heavenly tabernacle for us in exalted form as he ascended and sits at God's right hand after having purified us from our sins. And he intercedes and prays for us right now as our high priest, guaranteeing that those of us who are in Christ will never fall away. And yet, and yet, we must hear the warning and obey the author's command. By the power of the Spirit, we must not walk away from Jesus and go another way. Because if we do, we will not inherit eternal life. Two truths this morning. Number one, it is impossible for those who profess Christ and then walk away from Him to be renewed again to repentance. It's impossible for apostates to be saved. Now, I really encourage you today to not just listen, but to hear 
And may the Spirit help you to hear. In verses 4 through 8, we pick up verse 4 in the middle of an argument. As Pastor Jamal preached last week in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, the author infers from what he just concluded in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, that his readers should be able to digest solid spiritual food about Jesus. But he must continue to speak to them, that is the audience, about the ABCs of the Christian faith because they are spiritually immature. Now, for the audience of Hebrews, this is their immaturity. For whatever reason, maybe because of persecution, they are contemplating rejecting Jesus Christ alone and returning back to the Mosaic Covenant, the Law of Moses. As we'll see in a couple of weeks from chapter 8, Jesus fulfills everything to which the law of Moses pointed. The saving promises that God gave to Abraham. The author says that God fulfills all of those in Jesus Christ. So then, here's the argument. If they walk away from Jesus, the one who fulfills those promises, and return back to the old covenant that pointed to the fulfillment of those promises, they're walking away from Christ. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? If there's ever a day for call and response, it's today. Does that make sense? Now, let me clarify something here. The law, Romans 7, is perfect and holy, and it's good. But it doesn't save. And everything we have in the Old Testament, and by the way, you should read your Old Testament, Everything we have in the Old Testament is pointing to, fulfilled, and realized in Jesus. If you think of salvation, think of it like a clock that's going forward. When Jesus, the Old Testament is pointing forward to the moment in history when those promises would be fulfilled. When Jesus comes, he fulfills and dies on the cross and resurrects from the dead, he fulfills those promises. The clock of salvation goes forward, but the Hebrews are in danger of turning back the clock and going back to the very covenant that has already been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the author is saying to them, if you do that, you're forfeiting salvation. So he urges them to grow in their maturity. Notice, for example, in verse 4, he tells them the reason why. They should continue to hope in Christ. Verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted that guilt, the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Verse 6. And then have fallen away. To restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. The language of falling away or drifting in Hebrews is the language of apostasy. Again, let me define that. This is a term applied to those who profess faith in Jesus. They say they're Christians, they do Christian stuff, but they 
ultimately abandon him and they don't want him anymore. And the author is warning us not to fall into apostasy. Not to fall away from Jesus because if we drift into apostasy, we've reached a point of no return. There's no hope of salvation. That is why the author says, did you notice it in verse 4? Just look at the text. It is impossible, not difficult, but impossible to renew those people who once professed and then renounced Jesus to repentance again once they abandoned their original confession of faith. It is impossible. In verses 4 and 5, the author uses the language of, and notice the language, tasting the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and sharing in the Holy Spirit to refer to those in Hebrews who profess faith in Jesus. When I say profess faith in Jesus, I mean they say, I'm a Christian. And there's no reason to think otherwise until they renounce Christ. This is the language, brothers and sisters, of conversion, of salvation. Can I get really theological? Of regeneration, the new birth. This is not a hypothetical text about what could never happen to those who profess faith in Christ. Instead, this is a warning of what can certainly happen to those who profess faith in Christ, but then walk away from Jesus. Now, to clarify, a lot of clarifications today. <laughs> this text is not about one losing his salvation. At this church, we believe in eternal security because we believe that salvation is of the Lord. And we believe in predestination. In fact, I believe in double predestination, but that's another sermon for another time, or maybe not. This text is making the point for those who are genuine believers, they hear the warning and they don't fall away. But he's describing those who profess faith in Christ and what will happen to them if they fall away. Does that make sense? You're like, of course it doesn't make sense. Well, maybe a better question is, do you understand what I'm saying? Evidence of genuine saving faith is following Jesus until you die. Jesus says those who persevere until the end will be saved. The author is not saying that we can genuinely be saved today and then be lost tomorrow if we make a, make a mistake. Just by the way, if that were not the case, that is, if, if we can be lost tomorrow by making a mistake, then I'm going to hell because I made a mistake today. We all are sinners. Even when we don't want to sin, we are sinners. Now, we're righteous in Christ, yes and amen. But we still live in a fallen world. And even in my best moment with the Lord, I'm still battling sin. 
There are those who profess faith in Christ. Here's the, here's the point of the text. There are those who profess faith in Christ and who have all sorts of supernatural experiences in the Christian community. And yet they prove themselves to be unbelievers when they do not persevere. But rather renounce their faith in Christ. And when they do this, their actions agree with the crucifiers who murdered Jesus. And they say by their rejection of Christ that, once, that they once professed that Jesus is now accursed. And there's no salvation in him. This is why the author says in verse 6, this is what he means in verse 6. Look at it, at it again. This is what he means when he says, it is impossible for those who fall away to be renewed again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. To crucify again the Son of God means they have returned to their state of unbelief after having tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord. Now, I, want you to, I hope you're saying, can you support that? I can. I'm going to give you four arguments why I think I'm right. One, from four texts. First is in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 39, I'm just going to paraphrase this text. In verses 26 through 39, the author mentions the Holy Spirit and being enlightened to refer to genuine believers who have been enlightened with the gospel, who believe the gospel, and, and listen to this, who must persevere and who will persevere. Second, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus teaches that teaches he will command evildoers who claim to have done great things in his name, preach sermons, terrifies me. Cast out demons. And Jesus will say to them in the day of judgment, depart from me because he did not know them. And a key piece to that is he calls them evildoers. You know, you can hate Jesus and preach good sermons about him. May I, may I just wear my hat for a moment as a New Testament scholar? There are many great New Testament scholars who died without knowing Jesus. Wrote a lot of books about the Bible and didn't know the Lord. Third text. In John chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus calls Judas Iscariot a son of destruction. Now think about that. Ju Judas is probably preaching some pretty good sermons. There's no reason to believe he's not casting out demons and having some kind of spiritual experience. At the very least, he's tasting the powers of the kingdom of God by means of Jesus casting out demons, and he sees it. And yet we know he was an apostate. And by the way, you want an example of an apostate? Judas Iscariot is an example. Not Peter, who denied him three times and, did, and then repented. That's not apostasy. Judas is an apostate. Does that make sense? 
forth. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, John says, Those who left the faith were never really of the faith. So in a similar manner, in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, the author teaches us there are those who profess faith in Christ who may have all sorts of supernatural spiritual experiences in the Christian community, but yet they are not genuine believers. And they will prove themselves to be unbelievers when they abandon the faith and renounce Christ. They will not persevere in their faith until the end. They will, however, renounce their faith in Christ. And they will agree with the crucifiers of Christ by their behavior. And they will say by their unbelief there is no salvation in him. And they may even mock those who continue to follow Christ. I see this a lot, actually. People who were once zealous for the Lord. They abandon Jesus and they spend their lives attacking the Bible and make fun of those of us who still believe it. But here's a practical word for us. Here's good news. We who profess faith in Christ and who are following him, we know that we are genuine believers by holding on to Christ. Because God in Christ is holding on to us. Did you hear that? And we produce the kind of good works that followers of Christ are empowered to produce by the power of the Spirit. Such as we love the gospel. If you love the gospel, you're not an apostate. <laughs> Such as we love our brothers and sisters in Jesus. We love the people of God. We show hospitality. We love the church and all of the church's imperfections. We love the bride for whom Christ died. But if we don't love the God, and many other things, by the way, if we don't love the gospel, if we don't love God's word, then maybe we don't love Jesus. If we don't love our brothers and sisters in Christ, then maybe we don't love Jesus. But if we find ourselves struggling with love for these things, we ought not to despair. Instead, we should say, Jesus, I believe, but please help my unbelief. Look, there are many Christians that, maybe, maybe many is too strong of a word. There are some Christians in my life that are very hard for me to love. And if you're around Christians for a long enough period of time, sometimes you're like, wow, it's easier to love that unbeliever than it is to love that Christian. That's normal, I would argue. But here's what we do. We, we, we press in the love and that takes time and patience, right? Wisdom. But we don't hate. And love is an action, not, not, not a, not, ultimately it's not a feeling. There are emotions connected to love, but I love, I love broccoli, but I don't feel some kind of way when I eat it. <laughs> and hate's an action as well. You know you love someone by how you treat them. You know you hate them by how you treat them. Or what you withhold from them. A practical word, I've been walking with Jesus for 26 years. And I have thought about walking away from him more than once. 
in the last five years, <laughs> maybe in the last year. But the cold fact is this. There's no other place for me to go. If there were, I would. John chapter 6, when Jesus starts talking about drinking his blood and eating his flesh, some disciples said, this is a hard saying, they left. And he was speaking metaphorically about giving their lives to him, but they didn't understand that. And then Jesus looks at him and says, hey, y'all want to leave too? And Peter's, I believe it was Peter, if I remember correctly, says, where are we going to go? <laughs> I love that line. You have the words of eternal life. If you're struggling today, here's the word of the Lord practically. With faith. With the Bible. Don't despair. Come running to Jesus. He is your refuge. He is your anchor. So I would encourage you today, if you struggle, and we all struggle, you should regularly pray, Jesus, don't let me fall away. I remember when I was in my 30s, I'm, I'm old now, uh, when I was in my 30s, I remember there was a season of intense pain that's been incomparable to anything else I've experienced in my life. And my prayer life consisted of this for a long period of time. This is basically what I prayed. Jesus, don't let me fall away. And guess what? I'm still here. He answered that prayer. I couldn't make sense of my life. Emotionally, I was a mess. But he answered that simple prayer, don't let me fall away. And he kept me. And he even used that season as a means by which to strengthen my grip on him. Verses 7. Oh, oh yeah, I, mean, I, can't, I can't forget this. John 17, just know this as well. Jesus is praying that God would keep you. And God always answers Jesus' prayers. In verses 7 and 8, you know, I'm just going to entirely ignore the time here. And just talk till I'm done. But there's another service coming, so we'll be done before 11. In verses 7 and 8, I think the author supports my interpretation of verses 4 through 6. That he's talking about those who profess faith in Christ, but who are not truly saved. And that they prove this by abandoning the Christian community in Christ. The author does this by giving an illustration from agriculture to demonstrate the importance of good works in the lives of those who are genuine believers. Notice verses 7 and 8, verse 7. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and it is to be, its end is to be burned. So, so in other words, here's what he's saying. As Jesus says in John 15, you will know genuine believers by their fruit. A fruit of faith is continual hope in God, not perfect hope, but faithful hope in God and repentance as you struggle, as you fight, as you battle. That's fruit. Continuing to trust in the Lord, even when you don't understand why you're trusting in the Lord. 
That is fruit that God creates and produces in your lives. Well, second point. Genuine followers of Christ will never abandon their faith in Jesus. I hope you hear that word as a word of encouragement because it is. Everyone who is genuinely saved will not fall away. They will hold fast their confession of faith in Christ until the end. Jesus will never lose those for whom he died to save. Every, I'm just going to quote Romans. Everyone whom he predestines will be glorified. Do you feel that this morning? Call and response. Yeah, I feel it, preacher. If you don't feel it, say, no, I don't feel it. Make it plain. Let me make it plain. You have nothing to fear on the day of judgment if you're hoping in Christ today. And you know you're hoping in Christ today if you're following him. Notice verses 9 through 20. And listen to the encouragement. Verse 9. Though we speak in this way. What way? The way that he just spoke. He just spoke about what happens to those who profess faith in Christ and then fall away. What happens is they reach a state of no return. But we speak, though we speak in this way, notice this, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation for you. And I say, Midtown, amen. Hold on to that. It is true. If we don't persevere, we're proving we're not really believers. But it is equally true. Those of us who are trusting in Christ, we will persevere. He is confident we'll persevere. Why? And I want you to hear this. The reason why he is confident believers will persevere is because God made a promise to save us. And he sealed that promise with his own oath to himself. He called himself in that oath. He swore by his name to save us. He is not, I'm going to just calm down a little bit. He is not, no, I'm not calming down. He is not going to leave us to ourselves. This is no bootstrap religion, brothers and sisters. This is a reach down from heaven by the mercy and grace of God and Jesus Christ through the wrath-bearing death and blood that drips red for every tongue and tribe, people and nation, for a cross-saving gospel and resurrection, exalting gospel that reaches down in this pit of miry clay and resurrects us and seats us with Jesus in the heavenly places. That's what this is. And that's what he says in so many words. Verse 10. For God is not unjust. So as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. 
And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Now notice verses 13 and 20. He gets, he gets really to the heart of what I just said with talking about Jesus as the anchor of our salvation. He says, on the one hand, it's impossible for, for those who fall away to be renewed again to repentance. But on the other hand, now he's going to say it is impossible for God to lie. He made a promise to save us in Christ Jesus. And he's going to do it, verses 13 and following. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes an oath is, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, and by the way, we're the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, to lie about what? To lie about fulfilling his redemptive promises for us in Jesus. We who have fled, hold on to this this morning, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus, verse 20, has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Saints, we belong to Christ and he will never let us go. So six applications, very quickly. One. Yeah, that's right. Six. Somebody said six? Yeah, six. I got ten, but I'm just giving you six. <laughs> Number one. Rest in Christ, brothers and sisters. He is the source of your salvation and he is the source of your perseverance. Rest in Christ. This is not a message where you should say, oh, let me go out and try really, really hard to do it. No, no, no. You rest in Christ. Well, how do you rest in Christ? Many ways you can rest in Christ. One, one way is, is that you rely upon the Spirit. Another way is, is that you do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together on the Lord's day. A means by which the Lord will help us to persevere in our faith until the end is Jesus working in our midst of the Spirit by means of the people of God. I can't tell you the number of times just closing my mouth when other saints in this church are singing and listening to the voices of the people of God sing those promises of God have served as a means by which to keep me in the faith. Second, applications. If you're following Christ, here's, a, here's another, another practical means to help you persevere. Celebrate the Lord's Supper. We do that every Lord's Day. To proclaim the gospel afresh every single Sunday. And also celebrate baptism. If you profess faith in Jesus but you've never been baptized, then why not? Go to the baptism class and get baptized. Third, 
If you profess faith in Christ, do not live in intentional disobedience to the Lord. But fight against your sin, against your temptations, and the strong desires that you may have to disobey Christ. And you do have those desires. We all do. But fight by confessing these things to Jesus and to others in the appropriate context. And by getting the help that you need to overcome sin so that you may be equipped to fight against it. Quite frankly, some of us need to swallow our pride this morning and ask for help. We need a plan. And we need, by the power of the Spirit, to develop intentional strategies and disciplines to help us live in step with the victory we already have in Christ Because Jesus died for our sins, and we have the Spirit. Let me be more specific. You want to persevere in your faith in Christ? Stop fornicating with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Stop flirting with a woman or a man who is not your husband or your wife. Stop looking at pornography. Stop filling your brains with messages of filth and trashy music or movies that preach a gospel contrary to the gospel we say we believe. It's really hard to listen to the Word of God and to listen to what the Word of God is saying if our brains have to compete with trash, right? And if you're struggling with these things, very simple. Confess those things to Jesus and get help so that you'll stop. Don't despair. We have ministries here. We have Restore. have Pastor Nick right here. I didn't ask permission to call him out, but he's right here. He serves in Restore. That's a means by which to help. Not the only one, but a means. Get help. And finally... I said six, but I'll just give you four, okay? Finally, God will use preaching on the Lord's Day at this church as a means by which to keep us in the faith until the end. So we must discipline ourselves to listen to preaching when we gather each Lord's Day as a church at Midtown. Now, I want to lean on this for a moment. I want you to hear me and listen to me at the same time, all right? We are not here to be entertained. We are here to worship Christ, to encourage one another, and to be transformed by the power of the Spirit. One means by which these things happen is by means of the preaching of the Word of God on the Lord's Day and the celebration of the ordinances as a church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The ordinances, along with preaching and other means, are means by which the Lord will keep us by His grace from falling away. But the ordinances are not the center of worship. That's why we don't have a Lord's Supper at the center of the church, but a pulpit. Are you with me? 
That's why the baptismal is over here. The Lord's Supper is not the center of worship. Baptism, not the center of worship. But the Word of God is. Amen? Now I'm almost done. Saints, our preachers, our preachers, your preachers, are not here to preach for you. We are here to preach to you. We are here to call you to Christ. It is the responsibility, and listen up, pastors who preach. I'm preaching to myself too. It's the responsibility of those who step into this pulpit to preach, to lift our voices, and to preach the Word of God, not to lecture. That's boring. I do that for a living, by the way. (laughs) Not to give a motivational speech. Not to give a TED Talk. Not to entertain you or amuse you. Humor and sermons, that's fine, but we're not comedians. Not to bore you to death. Not to bully you. Not to be harsh to you. Not to lord it over you. Not to self-exalt ourselves. It's not our job to do those things. It's our job to preach God's Word to you. Because God will use by His Spirit the preaching moment as a means by which to motivate you from one age of glory to the next. And to be a means by which you are transformed by the power of the Spirit. And to be a means by which we keep you, a means by which we keep you from falling away. Sometimes... The sermons will be long, sometimes short. Another amen, right? (laughs) Depending on the preacher and the sermon preached. But it's not our jobs to get you out of here in time for lunch on Sunday. It's our job to preach God's word to you, pleading with your soul, pleading with God, please work, please do it, pleading with the Spirit, please work, please do it in the hearts of your people so that you all will not renounce your faith in Jesus. That's what we're doing when we're preaching. And if we're not doing that, we shouldn't be preaching. And I'm talking about myself as well. I think we all do that, by the way, as preachers here, just so that you know. So this is not reactionary to anything. So preachers, don't be anxious about what I'm saying. You all do this. The entire worship experience is preparing us for the preaching moment. So at Midtown, we need to value sitting under, continue to value, listening to, and hearing preaching, biblical preaching. And I would encourage you, bring your Bibles to church so that you can check that preaching with what the Word of God says. So that if we say something that is not right, you're able to test that with your word, not with your feelings. Not with what your podcast said during the week or what blog you read, but what the Word of God says. Amen? So may God help us to value, continue to value preaching, 
the Word of God, listening to the Word of God. And may God continue, continue to use the Word of God in our teaching here in CGs and in other ministries and preaching to value the efficacy of that Word, the sufficiency of that Word, to accomplish the end for which God designed, which is your transformation in Christ and your perseverance until the end. So brothers and sisters, Jesus is able to save us completely. Amen? Because he absorbed the wrath of God for you. You know the song we just sang? You can know a lot about what a church believes by the music we sing. Satan, get away from us. Why? Jesus has won the victory. Jesus owns you, brothers and sisters, by his blood. Jesus is exalted at God's right hand. Jesus has entered the pathway to God for you and open that pathway up wide for all of us who follow Jesus. Jesus is the anchor of our souls. So brothers and sisters, let's keep hoping in Jesus. Amen. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Soldier in Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.